many people listen to our podcast? Ooh, that's an interesting question, Lily. Podcast metrics are notoriously bad. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just an RSS feed, and we don't have that much info out of the Spotify's and the Apple's of the world. So I can give you numbers, Lily, but I'm not sure if they tell us that much. Well, that's some good timing, Randy, because this week we've got Rick Hyam on as our guest to talk numbers, metrics in particular. He's a staff product manager at Deliveroo, who are kind of like Seamless or Uber Eats, but here in the UK. And he's a recovering physicist, so he's all about the science and the data. Ooh, do you think he can fix podcast metrics for us too? Uh, sadly, no, that's not in his job description. But if anyone can, I'm sure there's much value to be had from that. Ooh, yet another excellent product idea. Okay, then let's get geeky with Rick about regular metrics. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Rick, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, for anyone who wasn't at your talk at the Mind the Product conference a couple of years ago here in London, where I am, and I realize neither of you are, uh, and most people listening aren't, but if you weren't at that talk and you haven't caught up on the video and things like that, just for anyone who doesn't already know you, how did you get into product in the first place and what are you doing today? Who are you? Why are you here? <laughs> Why am I talking to you? <laughs> <laughs> So I'm a, I'm a staff product manager at Deliveroo at the moment, and I work in the payments area. So my team looks at, we kind of bookend the product, and we look at payments in, how consumers check out after they've done all of their order and basket building. And then we look at the other end, which is how do we pay our restaurant partners and our riders. So it's, it's kind of money in, money out, money flow, that sort of stuff. And how did you get into product stuff in the first place? That's a great question, isn't it? I, I, I love that question because PMs just have a, a fantastic background. We, I, I ran a, an offsite once, and one of the things was people had to come in and, and kind of write down where they came from as a mystery. And then in one of the breaks, it was like pin the tail on the donkey. We, got, <laughs> we tried to guess where all of our product colleagues came from. It's brilliant. <laughs> so... Uh, I, I actually came from physics. I started um, did my undergrad in physics. I did a PhD, and I loved all of the the lab work, the experimental side of that, building funky products and stuff like in the lab. But I sucked at the academia side of it, so <laughs> I, I left academia. And um, I, I found a job as a as a software engineer for a petroleum software company so we did modeling and simulation of physics of oil fields and refineries and stuff like that and i thought this is brilliant this is the the match of physics and it and and simulation that i did at uni and i did that for a, a few years but 
the part of that that I really enjoyed was not the software engineering. It was the the exploring of the product. It was hearing from all of the engineers about what they found frustrating with the product. And I started building all of this stuff and my boss started not liking me because of it. And like, Why can't you just <laughs> deliver this stuff? And I'm like, no, no, but you know, this is all good. And I was talking to people inside the company saying, you know, and they were saying, this is great. When can we get this in? And my boss was like, we're not. It's not what you've been told to do. So <laughs> I didn't last much longer after that. I, I quit, <laughs> just to make that clear. Um, and so I then moved into uh, web development and I had a, a year at Skyscanner. And uh, that was kind of my, my foot in the door. The, the only job I could get there was with um, as a software engineer. So kind of blanked my way into doing web development, having not not done any web development before. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's where I discovered product management. So Skyscanner at the time was about 80 people, something like that. And they'd acquired a company um, fairly, just, just before I joined. And one of the people who founded that company became our kind of de facto product person. Before that, obviously, it was the founders that were the, the product people. And then Rachel came on board and she she kind of built out the product function without bringing in all of this kind of, yeah, we're starting product management. This is a product management team. And it, it sort of built from there. We brought a couple of people in and I started being involved more. It was really where I discovered what product is, what product management is. So I, after about nine months of being a, a web developer, I flipped and started product management and everything kind of just grew from there and I never looked back. So as a, as a recovering academic, you're someone who is really well-placed to talk about uh, the subject that we, we asked you to come on to talk about today, which is metrics and measurement and analysis and things like that, that a lot of us that are a little bit squishier in our backgrounds uh, may not be quite as good at. But there was something we were talking about last week, Rick, uh, and you said there's a big difference between what people say at conferences and in their articles and podcasts and things like that versus what they actually do day to day in real life. So can you puncture the, the balloon a little bit? What's the biggest difference that you see between things that are preached as best practice and what's actually done in your experience? Yeah, and I realize I'm sort of undermining everything I'm saying on this podcast. And, and <laughs> no, my, no, you're listening to the blanket. You're telling the truth. Product, all, all my articles, don't don't listen or read anything that I've, I've produced. But uh, yeah, I, I think there's a, I, I think the spirit's right. So, you know, these, these things are there as a way of people sharing their experience and trying to help other people, other people doing our role, do our roles better. And, and that's great because there's no school of product management, as anyone involved in product management will say. You can't do a degree in product management. We've all heard that time and time again. So what have we got? We've got conferences. We've got the training that's on offer by various groups. And that, that's kind of it. So I, I don't want to puncture the balloon too much, but I do think that, that the spirit's right. The danger is that we make people feel almost guilty that they're not doing it right or that it's not as easy as, you know, so-and-so who got on the stage and talked about it uh, says. And I, I think there's good reasons for that. I think it's you you had to produce something for a medium. It's either a talk or an article. It's something finite or a, a, a podcast where I've got half an hour to talk to you guys. And the fat's been trimmed and you can only really talk about the simplified version 
but mm. so so often the the devil's in the details and not even not even the details but the stuff that you don't talk about that that happens it's the journey you've been on that the learnings that you have had that you don't you almost don't think about and a thought that just popped into my head from absolutely nowhere that has nothing about product management but um a few years ago i got into bread making and uh way, way before pandemic sourdough happened <laughs> and i went on a course with a, a baker called uh, richard Bersonet. And he, he let us video in the class. So I was videoing him stuff. And then I started to video him helping other people correct their mistakes. And when I look back, they're the videos that are most useful. It's not videos of someone saying, this is how I do something. It was a video of somebody else struggling and him coming in and saying, ah, you're doing this when you should be doing that. Here's how you do it. Then they had it. And it was that correctional process and, you know, we, we see that in the, so many, so Spotify is a great example of it. And, you know, we had, we had Mind the Product Conference, <laughs> the man himself, Heinrich, got on stage and, you know, he was like, yeah, we do this at Spotify. It was never meant to be a blueprint that you just take away and you use. You, it was an idea that you put into practice, that you fine tuned for yourself. You worked out what works and what doesn't work and, so th- there's so many examples in product management of, of people just saying, yeah, you do this, or here's a framework that you use, plug numbers in, product will come out. And it, it's, it's tough to balance. So quite often when I'm looking at metrics, I feel like they don't always tell the full picture. You know, they're interesting, but I also feel a sense of uneasiness of can I really believe what I'm seeing? Um, And I think actually some of this is down to um, in a couple of different um, places where I've worked, we've had a number of different analytics tools that we've been using and they all say slightly different things. So I'm always a little bit mistrustful of what I'm seeing. What's your experience of that and how, you know, how do we get around it? Or is it a case of, no, that's perfectly normal (laughs) behaviour? It's a big leap to say that's perfectly normal behaviour, but uh, <laughs> I, I would, I would, I would agree with you to an extent. Uh, the, the main thing that I would agree with that I think a lot of people on the opposite spectrum to you would say is that you've got to trust the data. But what you said is correct. The data doesn't tell you everything. You can't just discount the data, though. It's it's there. It's important. It's informational. It's uh, one of the things we said at Skyscanner is product managers collect insights data is an insight and there's lots of other insights that don't necessarily come from data i always tried to use the word data by meaning qualitative and quantitative so i would see user research and user testing usability testing all of that kind of stuff as data it's information but i I think a lot of people think about it purely in terms of, of ones and zeros and to touch on one of the other things you said there about mistrusting data, I guess there's there's two elements of that. One is how we got that data, and um, we can come back to that. And the other one is literally just the numbers themselves. So we we had a huge problem at Skyscanner where people didn't believe the numbers, and quite rightly because we had Skyscanner evolved, as I say, from like eighty to hundreds and hundreds of people in nine, ten places around the world, and over time our data sources just grew. So we had 
GA, we had Mixpanel, we had our own internal data, we had stuff that the marketer team was um, bringing in, all sorts of stuff. And all of these produced reports that were kind of the same and kind of different. And it, it made people frustrated because they couldn't do their job. They couldn't decide which bits of that data they could trust. And it did, it undermined a lot of uh, people's trust in in how we work as, as product engineering and stuff like that. And fundamentally, you need data to be able to run a company, even if we ignore product management, but product managers need data to be able to make decisions. And one of my colleagues used to say, like in terms of what makes a good metric, he would say it has to be actionable, accessible, and auditable. So the two, the, the latter two there are the ones you're talking about. People have to be able to get to it easily, and people have to be confident in that itself. But I think the other part of the picture is that I'm going to use the word qualitative, but I, I would call that an insight. I would call it data. But yeah, that's that's what people see is how do we bring in the human part of that. So the, the two things that I would say potentially make people mistrust data is the underlying systems. Is it accessible? Is it auditable? And then the, how did we get that data? What does it mean? Do I understand everything that we put in to collecting that data? And therefore, can I understand and accept the result that came out of it? So when, when data comes in, there's two problems that I tend to have with it. One is sometimes people try to fine tune the data and under, get the numbers exactly right. And I usually look at it as uh, all data is relative. I'm looking for trends. I'm looking for stories. I'm not necessarily looking for the absolute numbers because maybe that's because I'm old and I grew up on hits as the measurement of, of web traffic, which was completely crap. And then I worked in media where they base things on diaries and things like that. And also consensual fiction, but you, the trends bear out over time or so I think. Is that useful or or should we be looking at absolutes and fine-tuning and making sure that the data is quality or uh, the right quality as well? I think there's probably scenarios that <laughs> cover both. <laughs> um, if you're going to look at the data in detail, then you need to be sure about its quality. Mm. But not all data needs to be looked at in detail. And it goes back to what we were saying about why do we have this data? Where does it come from? Most importantly, what questions are we asking to get that data? What decisions are we trying to make with that data? What other bits of data do we have that is going to contribute to that? What area of the product is this data about? You know, is it a a small new feature in either a big company or a startup where we don't have a lot of data, in which case things are a lot fuzzier? Or, you know, are you a startup and you just haven't got the traffic yet? And Or are we talking about a very mature feature in a, an enterprise company that we're kind of tweaking the last couple of percents on and we're maybe running A-B tests? And at that point, again, it's the question you're, you're trying to ask. If you want to know a small percentage change and whether something is optimum, then you run an A-B test, you look at statistical significance, and you need some pretty strong accurate data for that but yes i would say actually a lot of product management sits on the opposite end of that spectrum especially if you're sitting in the startup world and even if you're creating new products or or small features of large products it's that what's the trend where you know what questions are we trying to ask what question how do we know what direction we're going in 
it's the grey area that product mm-hmm. managers operate in 90% of the time. So, Rick, the f- a follow-up on that is one of the other things that happens a lot is people get an interesting number that comes in. So there's a trend and then all of a sudden an interesting number. Uh, so it's usually an outlier of some sort. And I've seen people jump on that really quickly. When is it right to do that? I, I usually say one is interesting. Uh, we should look and make sure that that it's valid in the first case. But I don't necessarily want to act on it if it's just if it just happens once. But wh- when should you pay attention to an outlier? It's an it's another input, right? It's it's an, it's another insight into the world we're looking at, and it could be incredibly important, or it could be absolute noise. And I think you're right not to jump on it, not to act on it. And I mean, I see this when I put engineers in front of user tests. It's, you know, they come out enthused, but it's about one person. They want to go and fix that one thing that they saw that one person struggling with. And they write to do that. But is it the most impactful thing that they can be working on? And it's So you, you broaden out again, what, where we're trying to go, what decisions are we trying to make? So I think you're right in that we you have a look at the outlier and you decide, is that something that's interesting enough that it could cause you to move in a different direction or to uncover something of value? And then, as you say, the, the next step is sanity check it. Is, is it actually potentially something or is it really absolute noise? And then if it is potentially something, how do I look into it? What either what experiments do I need to run to look into it? Or how would I go about collecting some more qualitative data around that input? How can I sanity check that this is something that that might have a bearing on what decisions we make and what direction we want to go in? Interested in boosting acquisition and driving product adoption? Or perhaps you're focused on reducing churn and improving profitability. Whatever the metrics that matter most to you, track them with Mixpanel, the most powerful self-serve product analytics solution. More than 26,000 companies around the world, including Deliveroo, TransferWise, now known as Wise, Uber, Ticketmaster and DocuSign, use Mixpanel to build better products. And now you can too! And the product experience listeners get five thousand US dollars off Mixpanel. Visit mixpanel.com forward slash MTP and enter code MTP5K to claim your offer. So we've kind of dived into the detail, but I'm really curious as to you know if you were going to start a brand new job in a with a brand new product how you would understand what metrics you should be measuring and kind of brief that into your development team or kind of work with your developers to get that in place? I I think that depends on what team you're joining. So I joined Deliveroo and it's very mature on the, the data side of things. They've got a very strong set of data scientists and they've got very clear metrics about what's important so from that aspect it's great because I I understand what the company metrics are I have a team who understand how to drive them what the relationships are how you run experiments so for me it becomes partly a case of 
helping my team understand that as well and, and joining the dots between what we're working on and what we're trying to impact at a company level. And then the other dynamic around it is depending on the thing that I want to work on, the, the new feature or the experiment or, or whatever else is the specifics around that. And, and then we're looking at what are we trying to answer? What questions are we trying to ask? Uh, you know, exploring that with the stakeholders. If, if we look at these metrics, what would the consequence be after the experiment's finished? How would we know whether the feature that we're building had an impact or not? So it's very low level metrics and uh, very specific to the feature that we're looking at now. And as a team, we'll probably have wider ones. And it's set in the context of what all of that means at a company level. If you were to join, I'm guessing, more of a startup company that may not have that set of metrics, that goes back to understanding the problem that they're trying to solve. Where do they think their business opportunity is? What pain points are they trying to address? Really understanding where they're trying to go. And then you can start having conversations around what metrics you would see as success if you achieved that, As you, if you achieved your business vision, how would you measure that? What would you see as success? What, what will have changed in the world for you to say, yeah, I've, I've achieved it? And then you can kind of work back from that. And then the other layer to add in would be leading indicators of that. So a lot of these metrics would be from a company point of view, revenue and that kind of stuff. And so it's having that conversation, drawing those lines between where we want to go as a company and therefore what do we have to look out to get there and how will we know when we're there. So that's really interesting because you're talking about metrics potentially at two different levels. One is at the, the team level and the other is at that uh, more corporate and strategic level. And you just talked about leading indicators and things like that. So who are the metrics ultimately for? And it, should we potentially be using different sets of metrics to communicate to, to our peers and our stakeholders versus what we might use within the team? That's a really good question. I mean, I, I would say metrics are for everybody. Whether we use different metrics for different audiences, I, ultimately everybody needs to be pulling in the same direction. So actually getting the company working off the same set of metrics, I would say, is, is very important. And I, I've seen that work really well with people who've joined teams and have helped mold that and helped communicate that across the business and really helped everybody focus around a set of metrics so if you're not improving one of those you you should question why you're looking at that metric it's not to say that's a bad metric or that it's not worth you looking at but it's worth understanding why you're looking at something different mm -hmm. and eventually it'll have to ladder up because if you're doing something completely different then that's a bit weird but you might be doing something that doesn't have a very obvious link and it's very hard to measure that so i think a lot of back-end product management engineering teams can work on stuff that's very infrastructure related and maybe performance related and it's hard to tie that back up ultimately there is a, a way to do that but it might be quite a few steps to get there and that's all right you have that conversation mm -hmm. and in in that sense you would need to to have different metrics to talk to those different teams you wouldn't go into a platform team and say you know so what are you doing to 
increased conversion this week or you know are we going to hit our roi on that marketing campaign <laughs> you're not going to have a very fruitful discussion with them on that front <laughs> but you you might be able to have a, a conversation around it's understanding everybody's priorities and understanding how stakeholders or even just different teams think about stuff mm-hmm. and trying to understand the relationship between that and your key set of company metrics. What about um, vanity metrics in that instance? So, you know, sometimes you do get a, a senior person in the business under the impression that just counting page views or app downloads or something like that is um, that's what they're focused on. And how do you overcome sort of understanding what the vanity metrics are and persuading stakeholders to think about the ones that really do matter. Like how many people are going to download this podcast? (laughs) (laughs) It's our favorite vanity metric. Absolutely. Uh, Yes, that's hard. And it's it's easy to say that it's just stakeholders. You know, it's your, your big, bad exec team come to you and want to talk about revenue Mm. Every product manager slips into that from time to time and they, they, they start talking about vanity metrics. And I, I think it's natural because at the end of the day, these are the things that you're trying to to change. And the other the other metrics behind that are the ways that you can change it. So I've in the past I've I've talked about product management as ratio management. And it's understanding that change to get us towards the vanity metric. So, I mean, the, the vanity metrics have all kinds of problems with them. They can mask behaviors. They can think that you're doing well when you're not. So it's it's useful to try and think about what you want to change. And then you can start to talk about, well, how will we know if we've changed that? And a lot of those conversations tend to focus around ratios, and they're, they're a great way of, of looking at these leading indicators, ways of saying, OK, we want to increase revenue. How are we going to do that? Well, we're going to introduce this new feature. And OK, what's that new feature going to drive? It's in, and you, you start to break it down that way. And then, then you're not talking about how much revenue you're going to make. You're talking about how many people do I need to sign up every day to make a profit? Mm-hmm. And, and then you can start to talk about well, what do you mean by profit, and you know what's the benefit of somebody signing up, and you know what what happens if we sign up twice as many people? How does that change things? Does it does it double the downstream profit, or and you know so you you start to look at all of these things as different levers and what are their relationships between them? So if you can frame those conversations around what are we trying to do, where we're we trying to go, how can we? If we look at the change we want to make in the world, how do we know how to get there? How do we know we're being successful along the way, not just when we've achieved it, not just at a specific moment in time, but looking at that change behavior? So if we're starting from scratch with metrics, a lot of times people will use things like North Star or Pirate Metrics or Heart Metrics or or other frameworks for this. How do you know when you're measuring the wrong things and how do you and when to iterate on your metric strategy so to know if you're measuring the wrong things i think is tricky i my gut is kind of saying you you almost don't know until 
afterwards. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I guess you, yeah, you don't know something's wrong until you, you realize it's wrong. Is there a leading indicator that's telling you that maybe you're measuring the wrong things, that you're not getting the real value from the metrics? I think if you if you're looking at the questions that you're asking and the decisions that are being made from them, the conversations that are happening around them, that will help you to understand whether these metrics are making it easy to operate as a business, essentially. Are, are they helping people to make informed decisions or is everybody just sitting in a room and arguing? Mm-hmm. And, and maybe that is an, an indicator that you're not all pulling in the right direction because people see different metrics as being the right or the wrong ones. And sometimes there's misalignment, but you're essentially still trying to get to the same goal. And it's it's a way of how do you pull that together? Um, I think things like commercial deals or advertising is quite often an example of that because the fear is that it takes people out of the of the product out of the flow it distracts people it's ugly all of that kind of stuff but equally the people involved in in setting up those deals are ultimately looking at making sure the business is still there right they're raising revenue that kind of stuff so you quite often find there's a mismatch there with the the metric that people are trying to drive so it's is how do you have those conversations and and then start exploring products that can achieve both of those things but in a way that is not disruptive for the user so instead of just firing them off to a a random website can we try and build advertising into our product in a way that provides additional value to customers maybe that we know a little bit of an insight we know this partner can address that and we're kind of matching them up or we maybe think they're in a wrong area of the product and and an advert or sponsored placement can pull them into a different area and it's it's about having those productive conversations. And I think if you're in a room where people just aren't able to decide on or agree on a direction, that's probably a bad smell for are, are you working through the right metrics? Another one might be that you you run an experiment or you have a new feature out and you then find it really hard to make a, a decision on it. And that could be that you've you've set up the experiment to look at the wrong metric in the first place. So the, the features out, you've got your results in, they've changed something, and you're still sort of thinking, oh, I wish, I wish that hadn't happened, or maybe that's happened because of this reason. And, and then it's worth stepping back and saying, were we measuring the right thing? Because the 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 metric leads you to the next question or the next decision. And if it's not doing that, then you should be asking is is that the right metric for us? So thinking about A-B testing then and um, metrics, you've obviously done a lot of <laughs> A-B testing in your time. What are your top tips for getting your A-B tests set up well <laughs> and also like making sure that you get a good result, whether that's a kind of a clear, I guess a good result would be a clear sort of indication in either direction rather than just nothing <laughs> yeah i th- i think a, a really interesting question that you can ask yourself is it's a, it's a kind of version of a retrospective and that bad pr headline is if this happened would i be happy killing a feature 
for example. So say we're introducing a new feature and the question you ask yourself is, if we don't see this result here or if this metric doesn't change, am I happy saying to myself or going to the CEO and saying, nope, we're not rolling that out? Or would I be sitting there going, oh, is that is that the right decision? Or should I have measured that instead? So anticipate the decision that you're going to have to make and, and see if you're the way you've constructed the experiment, the metrics that you want to look at, or the, the value of those metrics that you want to hit is going to be realistic enough for you to have that confidence in your future decision. So that's that's one way of looking at it. In terms of how do you go around crafting that experiment, deciding what metrics to do, I, I like to peel stuff back. So try and keep keep the five whys, keep asking why or keep peeling the layers off the onion. Try and get back to that core thing that you want to change and try and isolate as many other things as possible. So a lot of what we do in in we a lot of what academics and scientists do I, I love to think i'm still one but really i'm not I'm a, I'm a tech person now um but we isolate everything else except the thing that you want to change so how can we how can we craft an experiment where when we finish we know that the result is because of the thing that we changed and we're not going to finish the experiment and think oh it was because someone else did that or uh, maybe maybe it was because this happened, you know. If, if did we make that feature too big? Is that why it got too many clicks? So asking yourself these kind of questions in advance will help you to to craft a better experiment and just really stripping everything back, fixing as many things as possible, so that you know the one thing that you are going to change will have a direct impact on the decision that you need to make. That's a really really helpful um and I think there was a couple of kind of I sensed a couple of like diving into the sort of why 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 (laughs) why 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 all the time all the way through um to kind of really get to the heart of the metrics seems to be like a clear theme of the the conversation that we've had today it's it's a yo-yo right it's it's you've got a deep dive in those five whys but you have to bounce back up and surface Mm. and look at things holistically and Mm. and Balancing those two is is just one of these things that product managers are good at or have to get good at quickly. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, It's been a pleasure talking to you. And you. So, Lily. Did that answer your question about podcast metrics? Not really, but I did tell you that fixing that problem was not part of Rick's job. And he did give me a lot to think about and how I use metrics in my day job. And that's why I love chatting to each and every one of our guests. Ah, yes. Everyone knows that we only do this pod to learn to do our actual jobs better. Tune in next week for more great advice. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and me, Randy Silver. Emily Tate is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW, that's P-A-U. 
Thanks to Arna Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. Connect with your local product community via Product Tank, our regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, you can consider starting one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. Product Tank is a global community of meetups driven by and for product people. We offer expert talks, group discussion, and a safe environment for product people to come together and share learnings and tips. 